This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. If you're new with us, uh, we're going through Mark's Gospel as a series. We've been going for several months, if not a year at this point. We're in chapter 12. And in the middle of chapter 11, Mark takes a turn and he enters into the last section of the book of Mark. And that, that last section is, is uh, six chapters, 11 through 16, on the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, um, the Holy Week, as some call it. And, G- and Mark, excuse me, slows his gospel down to a snail's pace, and he just he kind of explains Jesus' last week and a lot of details in it. If you were with us, you'll remember that on Sunday of Holy Week, this 2,000 years ago, on that Sunday, Jesus traveled uphill from Jericho with tens of thousands of pilgrims, with revolutionaries, with those going for the Passover feast in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of men, women, and children going with him, massive crowds, mega crowds, Mark says. And he gets to uh, the Mount of Olives and he looks down um, on the temple precinct and he gets a young donkey and he rides in what is known as the triumphal entry. He, that Sunday night, enters into the temple and he inspects all of it, all 33 acres of it. He gave it a thorough examining. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you might think that it's right then that he cleanses the temple, what is known as cleansing of the temple, but it's not. He actually goes back to Bethany and thinks about it all night long. On Tuesday morning, he comes into the temple and it says he spent his entire day there, what we've categorized as cleansing the temple. He was turning over tables and chairs. He was pushing those who bought and those who sold sacrifices out of the temple precincts. He was not letting people go through into the Holy of Holies with what they would need to continue with the sacrifices of animals. And he did all of this and he taught, the reason I am doing this is because I want my temple to be a place where all nations can come together and pray. And through your extortion and your injustice, you've made it a den of robbers. And so for hypocrisy and injustice, God in Jesus cleanses the temple. Now he goes back to bed in Bethany. He comes back the next morning. That's when I would have scooted out of town. Comes back the next morning, Tuesday morning, he's back in the temple. In the Sanhedrin, the 71 men, the 71 most powerful men in Jerusalem came up to him, or at least a delegation of them, and they said, who do you think you are and do you know who we are? And they try and scare Jesus. They try and get him to leave based on who they are, or they at least want, at the end of it, to arrest and kill him because he's not afraid of them and he's outwitted them. And in fact, he's accused them of some heinous things. So the, Sadge- the, excuse me, the Sanhedrin then go away from him, and last week we learned that right after that, the Pharisees and the Herodians are sent by the Sanhedrin to go and try and trap him, and at that point, what was the hottest political topic of the day? Taxes. Jesus would not be trapped. In fact, his brilliance was so amazing that it says that the crowds were just astounded by who he was, how he behaved, and what he said. And so this week, we'll pick up in verse 18, and it says that the Sadducees came to him. Presumably, the Sadducees are sent by the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Sadducees were the most powerful partition or portion of the Sanhedrin. And it says that the Sadducees came to him. This is the only time in Mark where the Sadducees are referred to exclusively. And they're going to try and trap him on the hottest theological topic of the day, resurrection. But before we get into that, let me tell you a little bit about the Sadducees. We've talked about lots of little factions, parties, and sects in Judaism. In our study of Mark, we've talked about the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Scribes, the Elders. And now 
we talk about the Sadducees. Of all the divisions in Jerusalem, Judaism, and the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the most dominant. They were the Democrats and Republicans. All other parties were just sort of there to bounce ideas off of. The Pharisees were much larger numerically, but not more powerful. While the Pharisees are mentioned 100 times in the New Testament, the Sadducees are only mentioned 14 times. The Sadducees were much smaller, but they were much more influential. Listen to who they were. The powerful, the urban, the educated, the sophisticated, the aristocratic party. They were made up of the high priestly family and other leading families. They held titles and offices by virtue of their birthright. They were born into power, rank, and wealth. They were the upper crust of Jewish society. They were the highest social stratum. As you might imagine, the lowlifes and the ne'er-do-wells, like the zealots and the Essenes, were not exactly excited about the influence of these ones who were given all this power and rank. We'll come back to that maybe if I have time in a little bit. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two most dominant uh, parties or ways of thinking in Judaism. And they, they fought with one another constantly over theological topics. The Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. The Sadducees believed in free will alone, that God starts it and lets it go. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons in a spiritual world where God could intervene or Satan could try to intervene, but the Sadducees did not believe in a spiritual world at all. That's Acts 23.8. More pertinent for today, while the Sadducees held a broader understanding of scripture, the Sadducees believed that God revealed himself in the Old Testament, the entirety of it, and the oral tradition of their scribes talking about it, that God would reveal himself through all of that. On the other hand, the Sadducees, the men that we're studying today or we're looking at today, only believed that the Torah was truly from God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of it was just man's writings. Even more pertinent for today, or most pertinent, was that the Pharisees and the majority of the Jews believed in resurrection, the afterlife, existence after physical death. The Sadducees, on the other hand, denied the resurrection. They believed that when your body ceased to exist, so did your soul. And the reason that they picked just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the reason they picked that as their holy scriptures is because they felt like it was impossible to explicitly claim resurrection from those five books. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And so what we know from history, from Josephus and others, that when the Sadducees and the Pharisees would argue about resurrection, the Sadducees had this favorite riddle that they would use that's in our text today. And it would always dumbfound the Pharisees and the Pharisees were not able to figure it out. And they always looked really ridiculous when it came to that point of the argument. We'll pick up in verse 18, the ridiculous riddle of the Sadducees. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. When I was in Sunday school, we would remember that by saying, they're sad, you see. (laughs) See, it's good I went to Sunday school. I didn't pick anything else up, but I picked that up. Glad I was there. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us. See a little arrogance there? That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Literally, the word for offspring is sperma in the Greek. In other words, the man doesn't give her a son that's already alive. The man 
gives her a son. Now, the Sadducees are not making up some crazy Old Testament law or referencing something that's rather obscure in the Old Testament. They're actually talking about a large portion of the Old Testament scripture. If you want to read about it specifically, you can go to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It is very clear that that if a man dies and leaves a widow with no son, the son who could inherit his land and property, the son that could take care of his mother, if a man died with a, left a widow, excuse me, with no son, this is a quote, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother. And these are the reasons. If you look into the law, the law was always loving and Christ always fulfilled it as such. The law in Deuteronomy 25 and in the Old Testament was there to protect widows. Listen, in a culture where widows could not inherit their husband's estate, if the brother of the dead guy did not take the widow in and provide for her out of the brother's estate, then the widow had two options. She could go to the city gate and beg for food, or she could marry some stranger that she knows nothing about and hope that they take care of her and protect her. So the reason God gives in Deuteronomy 25 is first to protect the widow. The second reason is to honor the deceased brother, to preserve his name and his heritage. This is severe in God's eyes. The Sadducees are exactly right. This wasn't very important to God. If the brother refused to marry the deceased, let's, or the, the widow, let's say that he thinks there's some reason why his brother died. This, hey, listen, if you live in the Old Testament, there's so many applications I could draw right here. Like, make sure your older brother doesn't pick an idiot to marry. Um, when you're thinking about a husband, think about who the younger siblings are. All kinds of things we could go from here. But if he won't take her for whatever reason, she can go to the elders and the elders will speak to him and encourage him. And if he continues to persist and says, I wish to not take her, then the brother's wife, now this is severe in their culture, shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, shaming him forever. And if you don't think that's serious enough, in Genesis chapter 38, God killed Onan for not taking Ur's wife, Tamar, and providing for Ur a name and a heritage. And it said that he would go into her and he would waste the seed on the ground, taking all the pleasures of sexuality and none of the responsibility. And it said that God saw this as wicked and put him to death. So the Sadducees say, keeping in mind how serious and explicit this law is, Jesus, consider the following riddle. I pick up in verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he left no offspring, and excuse me, and when he died, he left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, at some point, even if this is feasible, let's say by death rate or war or an incredibly virile woman, but infertile wife. Let's say that somehow this is possible. The Sadducees give this riddle in such a ridiculous, ludicrous way that they expect Jesus to know that they don't believe in resurrection. And their point is this, they're hoping that Jesus will get trapped by their ridiculous question and give a ridiculous answer. You remember right now, all they're trying to do is get Jesus to lose popularity with the crowd so they can arrest and kill him and not have upheaval on their hands by the revolutionaries. 
And so this is essentially the question that they're asking to Jesus. Will they cut her up into seven pieces? Will she multiply herself seven times? Will she, as one woman, serve seven husbands in the heavens? Will the first have her because he was first, or will the last have her because he was last? And this is essentially the question they're asking Jesus. Which of these men will have less, will be robbed, will have an inferior afterlife to the present? Because you see, the Pharisees would argue there is an afterlife. There is an existence after death. It's largely the same categories of what we're experiencing now. It's just a little more glorious, and it is without end. There's no death in it. And so the Sadducees would say, well, if that's the case, what man will go to heaven and have less than what he had on earth? And so which one would have this woman? God clearly cares about the, it's called the Leverite law, where, where we take care of widows and the brother marries her. He clearly said that. And what you're making up from our perspective about resurrection violates that because one of these brothers will go into the heavens and have less than what he had here. And it always stumped the Pharisees. Let's look at Jesus' response. Remember, in this whole series of the last week of his life, he is always being asked questions where the religious leaders are trying to trap him, and he's always brilliant in his response. He always answers the question, but never directly. Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. First, he doesn't answer. Instead, he says, something quite emotional and strange for Jesus. You're wrong. And at the very end, he says, you're quite wrong. The word he uses for wrong here is where we get our word for planet, and it literally means in orbit, way off base. He says, you're wrong, you're in orbit, you're way off base, you're so out of the ballpark because you don't know scripture and you don't know the power of God. We'll look at scripture first, verses 26 and 27, and then we'll look at the power of God, verse 25. Pick up with me in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, I love that. That means Jesus didn't know it was Exodus chapter three. I love that. I love that he's just like, hey, that passage about the bush, you remember that one? It's a huge passage in Israel's history, and I love it that he says the one about the bush. Makes me feel good about my lack of memory. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So he quotes Exodus chapter three, verse six. It's also a direct quote of 315, 316, and four, five. And he says, God said, I am present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs may have died centuries ago, but they do not cease to exist. They're with me now. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. If that were the case, he would be God of the dead and not the living. And Jesus teaches what we learned this week in City Bible Reading. Jesus teaches a view of the body and the soul that ultimately they will be bonded together forever. But at some points in our existence, they can be separated. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Irony of ironies, the Pharisees are right. This is the first time where Jesus sides with the Pharisees in an argument. They probably have no idea what to do with themselves. 
The Pharisees teach, and Jesus confirms, there is a life of glory with no end, no death, no corruption. Then in the new heavens and the new earth, death will be defeated. I was thinking about this this week. I was dreaming about the new heavens and the new earth. I was considering where the brothers and sisters of Jesus by faith will go forever. And I was thinking about news as it was coming across my desk, whether it be news on MSNBC, news on NPR, news on my email, news wherever I ran into it. And I thought of all the places where the new heavens and the new earth will deal with what is our reality now. In the new heavens and the new earth, no animal will commit violence against another animal. The lion and the lamb will lay down together in peace. I don't remember where I heard it or who was involved, but I remember a couple of bears killed a weaker bear in a zoo and onlookers were shocked in horror. In the new heavens and the new earth, no natural event will cause pain, loss, or death to humans. Tsunamis, floods, and the like incapable of injuring human beings. In the new heavens and the new earth, no animal will cause pain, loss, or death to humans. It's my previous county, Polk County, where the elderly lady was attacked by four raccoons and filleted this week. No bullies will pick on weaker, outnumbered kids. I see the video of the kids hazing and stepping on and beating a weak and unprotected, undefended student can't happen in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no theft, there'll be no rape, there'll be no kidnapping, there'll be no murders. You won't get a call from your dad hearing of an irregularity in a nuclear stress test that demands further tests when your dad never calls and he decides to call, so this must be important. You'll never get an email that a friend, from a friend, speaking of a friend whose long battle with depression ended in suicide. Most important to me this week, although those are radical ideas that I look forward to, and I'm glad on this count that the Pharisees were right, the heavens will also be a place of non passe pecare, not able to sin. I'm really excited about that. Just this week, a friend had to call me and tell me about a place where I judged him and used him. And he sought for me to repent, which I did. And at the end of it all, all I did from my perspective was made fun of him. But I was exposed as insensitive, selfish, self-centered, willing to use someone I love to look good or be approved. A laugh was more important to me than him. Not able to sin. So Jesus uses the Sadducees scripture. You see this, he goes to Exodus. He goes to the first five books of the Bible and he says, listen, there is life after death. It does not say I was the God of the patriarchs. It said, I am present tense right now, abiding by my promises to them, keeping them alive and I will fulfill every word I said to them. But we go back to our text and we go back to the riddle and we wonder, is Jesus going to look ridiculous? If there's life after death, the question of verse 22 remains, whose wife will she be? 
And Jesus answered, remember, he said, you're wrong about the scriptures, which he meant Exodus 3, 6 and beyond. And he says, you're wrong about the power of God. Look with me in verse 25. When they, all eight of them, rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Listen, this is what Jesus is not saying. I don't have a front pocket for my pen this week, so my nerdiness is being thwarted. He is not saying that we'll be like angels in every regard, but he's saying in this regard, in this realm of marriage and sex, we're gonna be like angels. Now I gotta tell you, I look for a loophole all week. I, I scoured every resource I have, hoping that someone would say it doesn't say what it says. And I couldn't find one. And the reason I'm hoping, honestly, that it doesn't say what it says is because I love and enjoy my bride. I love and enjoy marriage. And I love and enjoy, and enjoy sex, all, all based on the incredible grace and unconditional love of God. I texted a, a friend this week. Yesterday, actually, we had Waleed's, which is Mediterranean food, the best Mediterranean food in the world. It's on Lee's. I'm kind of like a NASCAR driver. I'm hoping someday I'll have people sponsor me. <laughs> Apple, do you want a flat, Starbucks, Waleed's, whatever. <laughs> Bring your friends so I have more buying power. And we bought it on Thursday, and it was still in the fridge on Saturday. If you know me, I don't do leftovers. They freak me out. I'm a very OCD kind of person. Just that condensation on the top of the lid just about <laughs> drives me nuts. But my bride that I enjoy so much broiled it for me, which is the best way to dry out germs. And I texted my friend, and I said, Waleed's, like wine and women, gets better with age. I absolutely believe that. And so I'm kind of shocked to find out. I've always known this passage was here, but I was hoping smarter people than me could tell me how it's not here. And this is what I learned this week. That the Sadducees and the Pharisees both on this account were quite wrong. The Pharisees thought you would go to heaven with your wife and you would live forever with no death. But the New Testament teaches the resurrection life is not a prolonged earthly life with the same categories, patterns, and taxonomy. It is a new dimension altogether. First Corinthians 15 says that the glory of the heavenly body is of another kind altogether compared to the glory of the earthly body. It's like the difference between the sun and the moon. I love this quote. I love this quote because it speaks of the connection and the otherworldly reality of now and then. It's from a commentary the glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life than can butterflies be compared to caterpillars. Present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon sunset. Resurrection life, what Jesus is preparing for those who trust in him, will surpass our wildest imaginations, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Resurrection life will not be coming back to life, but in a sense, it will be experiencing true life for the very first time. 
The scriptures tell us that physical life is a dim analogy for what resurrection life will be life will be like. It will not just be life after death, but life without death. And so I thought about my love, my love that God has put in my heart to love things that are good and my love that is idolatry that looks for something out of marriage and sex that I should not get there. And I just started to think about why would this be that there would be no marriage and no sex in heaven? I realized that marriage and sex will be rather unnecessary in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not an exhaustive list and this is not a list of most important to least important, but here's some of the biblical reasons why God gives marriage and sex. First, procreation, the propagation of the human race. Procreation and propagation, the extension of the church. One of the main reasons he clearly says he gives marriage and sex for procreation and propagation, but it's not necessary in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no death and there'll be no need to replenish. Well, then there's the reason that he gives in Corinthians that it's protection from sexual temptation. That he gives a man a woman and a woman a man and instead of them being tempted from outside of that marital relationship and bringing shame on the church, he gives, he gives a husband or a wife so that we can be satisfied and bring glory to the church. But protection from sexual temptation, non passe vacare. Then I thought, well, Another reason is what David and Bathsheba do when they comfort one another and they give one another solace in the midst of suffering and loss. That won't be necessary since there'll be no sin and no death. But to me, the most proactive reason for why God gives sex and marriage is for proactive sanctification. I think he gives it to us so we grow in the knowledge of the love of God that for some of us, so that we can understand the rest and the satisfaction and the pleasure of having vulnerability met with unconditional love, vulnerability met by intentional pursuit, vulnerability met by blessing, weaknesses and insufficiencies adored and accepted that one of the reasons God tells married couples to have sex is so that we can understand on a physical and deep emotional level what he does for us spiritually. And that is to be laid naked in front of him with all the things that don't measure up. And for him to say, I choose you, I want you, I'm ravenous about you, I sing over you like a bridegroom sings over his bride. I want you. I want to bless your vulnerability. This draws me to repent. When my wife meets the inadequacies of who I am with blessing and love and desire and tenderness, it makes me want to repent and tell God what he already knows about me, which is insufficient, inadequate, in rebellion, and doesn't measure up. And the Bible says that when I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I'm not talking about sex. I don't think we'll have sex with Jesus in heaven, but we will be his bride. 
something deeper and more full, all of our longings and needs that aren't met in sex, we met in him. In heaven with Jesus, all who have faith in him, whether now you're happily married, divorced, or single, whether you're unhappily married, divorced, or single, all who have faith in Jesus will enjoy him with a comprehensive friendship. A sense of being intimately known. An entrance into an unbreakable covenant. A rapturous and deeply satisfying love. The most intimate of friendship. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. From a biblical perspective, although I often think too much of it and idolize it, and although I often think too little of it and disrespect it, marriage is a windshield. It is to be looked through at the love of Christ for you. It is not to be stared at. From a biblical perspective, marriage for those God gives it to is like a bike with training wheels. He gives us something to lean on until we can actually ride our bikes. Marriage, one commentator said, is like children playing dress up in adult clothing. Every wedding is a pointer to the grander wedding and the more enduring set of vows. And so while I have to admit today I'm sad and actually angry that I won't be married and have sex in heaven, I have to trust Jesus that what he has is better, more full, and amazing. So if this is the afterlife, let's say I lost you on that whole sex part. I'm totally okay if I did. Let's say the part I said before that about nature not attacking itself and nature not attacking humans and humans not attacking themselves and humans not attacking other humans and humans not able to sin against one another. Let's say that was intriguing enough to you, not that, not that the gospel would sound credible to you as an unbeliever, but, but that it would sound incredible. Not that you could get your mind around and grip the gospel, but that the gospel would grip you. So if that's the case for all of us, how do we enter in to the new heavens? the new earth. Go back to what Jesus said. They didn't understand the scriptures. I'm back in verse 26 now. The place, the story about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. When God defines himself in the Old Testament, I don't have time to give you a lot of this, but when he calls Moses to go be the deliverer of God's people out of Egypt, Moses is scared and God says, I'll be with you. And then Moses said, well, who should I tell them is sending me? And he said, this is my name. I am. I exist. I'm present tense. I am. And then he says, I am the God of the patriarchs who have died. While they have ceased to be, from one perspective, I continue to be and I am. And so the Old Testament name for God, what we see is Yahweh, I am who I am, I am what I am. It is this concept of I am right now, no matter what you're going through, I am present. And Jesus in the Gospel of John, John captures seven statements that start with I am. It's one of Jesus' clearest claims of being divine. He says, I am the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the light of the world. He's the light of the world who when he dies, it's dark across the land. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. His bread, his body is ripped apart for our sins. Jesus says, I am the resurrection 
and the life. That this is, this is the story of the gospel. That Jesus endured an experience of death beyond any category that we should have experienced so he could give us an experience of life that is beyond any category that we should experience. That he bore the death that we should have died and gives us a life and a world without death. He was buried so that we would transcend the grave. He went through death so we could enter our world without death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for your teaching. I thank you for your shepherding of us. I thank you for truth and brilliance and wisdom and salvation. I thank you for grace and mercy. I thank you that due to your grace and calling, we can be wrong sometimes and discover that later. I thank you that when we sin, you die for us. I thank you that when we want to love, you empower us. I thank you for life change and me and my friends that I've witnessed over the last two years that speaks to your gospel power. I thank you as I look at these men and women for the testimony it is to my heart that you are, you exist, and you're saving. In your name we pray, amen.